Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview. This interview with Dan Gosling started the way several interviews have in that we just immediately jump into conversation. There's no time for a formal introduction or a formal greeting or uh, welcome to the show. We just go. And in this case, Dan and I started talking about the lockdown during COVID-19 and uh, what we were doing, how we're doing personally and, and such. And so there was no really great edit point to begin other than what you're about to hear. So please enjoy this interview with uh, Mr. Chop Saver himself, Dan Gosling. And it's incumbent upon you to you know, be a leader, to thrive, to, to keep the county going, to keep putting out content, to be entertaining, to be informative, to be useful. Um, if that's what I'm, you know, trying to do, I, I put out, you know, more email blasts the last month than I normally do, um, just to kind of keep in contact with the people that do know about me. Yeah. Um, just, just, you know, again, Marketing 101 is don't let them forget you're around. Right. Don't let them forget about you. So, but, so Noelle's going to, you know, she'll probably keep teaching some over the summer. She's got a couple seniors that are kind of in, you know, the twilight zone right now. I mean, most of them know where they're going to go next year if going to college is still even a thing. Right. Um, but as I was you know, kind of hinting at, Chop Saver is becoming more viable, and she's seeing um, the value of having something that's not so dependent on I mean, I'm still dependent on a lot of things kind of working out right. properly here. To, but, um, you know, I, I may have mentioned, because it took so long for it to finally come together, and it wouldn't surprise me if I told you about this along the way. We were working on a private label deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which finally happened, which, you know, by happening, meaning the order finally came. That's it wasn't fantastic. Theoretical. Holy cow. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. So that is, you know, truly a lifeline. It, it mm-hmm. gives viability, you know, both financially and and mentally. Yeah. That yes, this product needs to be out there. I got I don't know if you saw my email blast last week where I asked for people to send in you know, testimonials, and some of the stuff I got was just like, 
really heartwarming. I mean, like it really makes it. It needs to be out there. It's, yeah. it's not just oh, it's kind of nice. Some people like it. It's like one per, you know, one woman said, "This stuff changed my life." Yeah. Um, game changer. I, I, you know, it's I, so. The my deal is okay. You know, got to figure out the best ways to get that out there. Now, if partnering with a medical supply company can you know, catapult this thing, let's do it. And that was a two-year process. It was just another lesson in patience. You know, I'm the poster boy for persistence and patience and and um, persuasiveness. And sometimes you have to keep persuading yourself. Sometimes you have to persuade your wife. Sometimes you have to persuade person sitting across from you with the booth to buy your stuff. Right. Or you do it digitally through a well crafted email. Anyway, so we're we've hired a new digital marketing agency to really so that our Facebook ads aren't just me pushing something out and so that the it just the whole digital world is kind of out there. Yeah. And I know a lot about it, but it's not it's not where I should be spending most of my time. So yeah. we're interviewing several companies to kind of come up with who's going to be that next piece of the puzzle uh, to get this thing where it needs to be. But certainly having a medical distributor place an order, a large order, is a huge deal. Now, it's just their first order. It was not as big an order as we thought it might be at the start. But, hey, it's just, you start, it's still a huge order by my standards. Um, and, you know, the other thing that's exciting right now is we're, I've got a hospital in Chicago You've seen these pictures of the doctors and nurses with, you know, red faces and bruises on their face from the masks, from wearing these masks all day. Yeah. Um, and and we we know the chopsticks might really help that. So we we're partnering with a, a Chicago hospital that's kind of right in the teeth of it. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to try it out. They're going to give it out to you know their frontline workers and hopefully rub it on their face and, and give us some great testimonials for yet another use, uh, unique use for the product at a time when it's really needed. So between that, Noelle's kind of, you know, she's got some time on her hand. She's very creative. And, of course, my son is was supposed to be interning, um, doing an internship in Los Angeles, so mm-hmm. which got canceled, of course. Wow. Uh, there was a there was a course. Yeah, he could still. So the course that he was going to take it was a combination of course, and then he was going to find an internship. And he'd already pretty much lined up an internship with a with a production company that does movie trailers, mm-hmm. which was sounded really cool. But the coursework um, they're going to offer now as a digital Zoom type class, wow. and it's the, it's the guy it's the guy in LA still teaching it. So mm-hmm. I said, go ahead, and, you know, do that. Um, but I think your internship now is chop saver, and you, 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 I need you to. You, know, you need to create some new images, some fun videos, mm-hmm. um, just really cool digital content. Whether it's stuff just for an Instagram post or where it, maybe it's a long form video. So this stuff is right up your alley. You've kind of been dabbling in Daddy's business a little bit, but you know you, you kind of need each other right now, and this would be a great way for you to keep adding things to your portfolio. You know, doing really quality work for mm-hmm. a real company it just happens to be, you know, the one that you grew up with. <laughs> so, yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, in the meantime, he's turned into this really, you know, budding superstar of the, of the graphics and video guy. So, 
things do often have a way of kind of falling into place if you have the mindset for that. If you see the world unfolding that way in your favor, even in a pandemic, you can still get through. If you're one of those that, I mean, that's kind of the basic question you have to ask yourself, I don't care what you're doing. Is, is the world basically set up for your success or is the world out to get you? That's the first question you have to ask yourself. And then from there, the choices become either easier or harder, depending on which which one you chose. Well, it sounds a little paranoid, you know, to think if they're out to get you. I mean, how do you well, right. how do you work around it's, that? Or, yeah, it's, it's it's you know, it's mindset. If you, if you tend to look at things in a positive way, you're going to find those positive ways forward. If you tend to look at things like, oh, gee, there we go again. See, I knew that was going to happen. That becomes your self-fulfilling prophecy. Anything will become a self-fulfilling prophecy if you put enough energy behind it. Yeah, and that's right. the challenge, is, is, is to keep the energy where, you know, where it's productive and helpful and not right. where it's um, destructive either to yourself or people around you. Well, that goes back and to that, you know, what you were saying with, you know, those who, who are going to thrive and those who are going to succumb to to this. You know, I think that's a lot to do with mindset there too, right? Oh, yeah. It's totally mindset. It's totally. Now, you could say, well, oh, you know, he had, um, you know, he or she, you know, he, he, had a, he had a successful business to begin with, and of course he was going to be fine. Well, you know, this this, this thing is going to it's going to wipe some people out. It's going to take some people out. Now, if someone built something of any, you know, built something once, they can probably rebuild it. And there's all kinds of stories of people that, you know, I, I lost my business because of X, Y, or Z, but then I built yet another one, even better. That's the mindset of, of the builder who understands that nothing is permanent, you're going to go through crap, um, and how do you come out on the other side of it? Whereas someone else, if they're mentally not strong in that area, the first sign of, 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 oh, gee, things are going to, going to hell in a handbasket here. Those people are going to have a harder time to recover. So I don't need to go preaching about this, but I just feel like, you know, we're, we're all kind of living it right now. Yeah. And just look at the people that are keeping calm and look at the ones that are freaking out yeah. and try to emulate the ones that are keeping calm. Well, and, and this has not been the first dip. Uh, to quote uh, Seth, who's the who's the writer of the book, The Dip? Um, I'll come back to that. You know what I'm talking about? That book, not Seth Rogen. Oh, Malcolm Gladwell. No. Well, that's definitely an edit point right there. <laughs> um, but he, he, you know, he's every business goes through a dip, and it's whether you persevere at that. Oh, the dip. Oh, the dip. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's whether you persevere through that. You know, most businesses give up in, in that because it seems like that's the best thing to do. But usually right. they come out stronger on the other side if, right. they, if they can weather it, you know. And, and you've been there uh, probably more than once, I, I would imagine. Yes, yes. And I think that kind of dovetails into, you know, maybe the kinds of things you really want to talk about on this particular podcast, but, you know, people that, um, yeah, it is Seth Godin, by the way, the dip. Oh, um, yeah. You know, people that have gone through stuff 
as a player and have come out the other side um, and are stronger because of it. You know, the two, I'm, I'm super fortunate to to know and call friends two of the best examples of that that are currently you know, thriving uh, would be Wayne Bergeron and Tom Hooten. Just, they just so happen to work, both work in L.A. now. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I, whenever I spend time with them and when I've interviewed them, you know, what I want to get to is you've, you've been very frank and honest about your chop problems or your, your, your struggles with mm-hmm. making those two pieces of flesh function properly. Mm-hmm. And, and with Tom, I mean, he'll tell you, it was, it was when he was in grad school. And, you know, if you, if you go back and see the interview that I did with Wayne last year, he talks about, you know, his chops were failing him while he was on tour with the big fat band in Japan. I mean, completely freaking out. And it wasn't the first time that it happened. And yet, you, you listen to him now, and there's an example of someone who figured it out. Yes, they were freaking out. Yes, they were. doesn't mean they were superhuman, never had any emotion about it, or didn't have you know, some, maybe some even depression about those times they went through. But they persevered, um, not only because of what they brought to it, but... Both of them are super high-quality human beings, mm-hmm. and the people around them wanted them to succeed, whether it was Mr. Katala in, in Tom's case, or whether it was the guys on the big fat band that were kind of helping Wayne or covering for him a little bit when he was struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, they will, you know, he had put in, you know, in, in Wayne's case, he had put in, you know, many, many years of, of great playing and being a great colleague. Mm-hmm. So when he was scuffling, people wanted to help him. If he'd been an asshole for all those decades or those years when he was, you know, when he was coming up in the L.A. ranks, um, and we all know sometimes people take that route. You know, mm-hmm. I played better than you, and I'm going to prove it to you every time I'm in the room with you, and I'm going to be a jerk while I'm doing it. But as long as that person never misses, you know, they can get away with that. But the minute that person yeah. starts struggling, boy, the wolves come out. You know, the knife come out, and that and that person's career is probably done. Mm-hmm. In Wayne's case, his career wasn't done because a he didn't want to give up, mm-hmm. and the people around him rallied around him, and when, which is a testament to him as a person, not mm-hmm. just him as a trumpet player. There are an awful lot of people out there like that. You know, those those guys are very high profile, obviously. But I think you know. You think about the people that, that we work with uh, here, and I, I would say there's a – you'd find a lot of people like that here in Indianapolis who would be very supportive. Um, oh, sure. And, I, you know, I would say, you know, I think by and large, on the whole, the, the, the brass world, the trumpet playing world mm-hmm. is, is very generally very supportive. I think, yeah. And I think that's even gotten – better because of the internet i think the internet has has um brought people more you know you can you can you can you you can seek out i mean when i was growing up i didn't know how to reach adolf herself and the only way i could reach vincent chickowitz was to be fortunate enough to become one of his students um now you can message you know wayne through youtube or or you can through facebook or and i think it's kind of brought everybody closer whether it's a comeback player or a high school player. And I just think we don't suffer a-holes like we might have in no. the past because 
we're all out there to be seen, uh, whether it's at an ITG conference or whether it's online or whether it's through YouTube. And that stuff comes out more. And I think we have to be more supportive. And I, again, I think by and large, the, the brass world, the music world, is, is supportive. And if, if you're not, you're not going to last for long. And I would certainly say I'm very fortunate to have worked you know, in a city that, that always sort of had that going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, that comes down to the, the people that were there before I came. It was yeah. the, you know, the Martin Terrys and the, the Bob Woods and the, and the Larry Wisemans, yeah. you know, people that uh, just knew how to function on a gig, knew how to bring in a young player without being intimidated, mm-hmm. knew how to uh, create work. I mean, but I will say one of the things, that, one of the smart things I did when I first came to Indianapolis was try to find my own work. Instead of, yeah, I was thrilled to be called, you know, to play extra with the symphony or something like that, or to do a recording session early on. Um, I figured they must, you know, if they're calling me, they must, someone must have bailed out or someone's sick or whatever, and this is my opportunity. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, I was creating new things. I was I was hustling for a, a brass quintet that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. I was finding work at Christmas time that didn't exist before mm-hmm. I came and, and kind of created it. Um, and I think people appreciated that. They saw that I wasn't just like waiting for them to die or waiting for them to get sick. Right. That it, I was buying my time. I was getting my my students wherever I could find them, creating my own thing. And then when the bigger opportunities came along, it was a natural, organic progression. It wasn't like I had just you know, taken someone's work. Or, right. you know, the classic example the guy who gets a gig and then he starts bad-mouthing the person who gave the gig. I mean, mm-hmm. that's... You know, that kind of stuff just won't, won't cut it anymore. It, should, it shouldn't cut it. Boy, I tell you what, you kind of you you took this a direction I wasn't expecting. Yeah, you know, and, and I wanted well, to talk chop saver, but this is you know this might be my bonus content for uh, for this episode. <laughs> uh, you know, because it, it's how often you get to talk to somebody that has started a business from the ground up. Um, literally, right? Because some of your ingredients, um, which uh, do they really? I'm on the ground. Yeah, well, exactly. But I was going to say, you know, I, I asked for the secret recipe the other day, and you said, well, we start with glass chips. <laughs> yes. Only, only, only the finest, the, you know, the, the finest grade, yeah. you know, they come from India. The glass chips yeah. that we use in chops here, no. Yeah. Okay. So you, you, you should name it, you could rename it Shredder uh, for sure. On that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, how can you get to talk to somebody who's who's done that and endured the process? Um, you know, the ups and downs, and to finally get, uh, well, I, I I consider you very successful for a long time with this, but, you know, now, I mean, you've been living this, and this private label thing uh, is probably, it sounds like it's the biggest thing that's happened uh, for Chop Saver. Yeah, I mean, looking back, you would say, what you know, we got it into CVS, and wasn't, you know, isn't that everyone's dream to get their product into a major retailer? And that was my dream, mm-hmm. and I did it, and until the dream turned into a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, sometimes that happens. You, you've got this thing that you think is going to be your your golden ticket, or you know, that's the, that's what I, you know. I have to do that because that's what success means. Yeah. And once I do that, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. Well, you know, things unfolded in such a way that I, I wanted that to happen. I saw it as a goal. Um, Things finally fell into place after many, many, many years of no, and, and, and it's not right, and what are you doing here, and, and rejection. 
<laughs> and I finally got it, and that happened. And then a whole other host of problems came yeah. because of that. And what I'm trying to do now, instead of saying, um, hey, I, you know, success means getting it in Walgreens or success means getting it in CVS. Well, I got it in the CVS, and I know what that mm-hmm. looks like and feels like. Now, we got into CVS, and then the next, some of the other pieces of the puzzle, um, extra fun, added funding for marketing to make sure it really did well at CVS. That's where it kind of fell apart a little bit, mm-hmm. and that's why we didn't hit the numbers that, that you know, that I wanted to hit, and but we certainly didn't hit the numbers that CVS insisted we hit. And then it kind of, you know. But in the meantime, what was happening? Well, the world was not going to drugstores so much. They were going to Amazon. Well, luckily, I already had a presence on Amazon. And, and even though I was telling everybody, hey, go to CVS, go to CVS, go to CVS, my Amazon orders went up anyway. <laughs> and I started realizing, oh, even though I'm telling them where to get it, the consumer, now that they have these new options called online shopping, um, they're going to tell me where they want to buy it. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas when I first came, when I first came out 15 years ago, yes, you could, online shopping was a thing. E-commerce was a thing. Amazon existed then, but still kind of like a big old bookseller at the time. Mm-hmm. It was not what, what obviously Jeff Bezos was planning. Um, and we're seeing his vision kind of unfold before our very eyes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can, you can um, hate him or love him for what he's done. I mean, he's, he's, Clearly, one of those handful of people has literally changed the world. You know, you put in that same group, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and people like that. Right. Um, but so what I realized was, hey, CVS didn't work out. That was tough. That was probably one of the lowest points mm-hmm. um, to have achieved this this dream and then realizing it was all kind of an illusion. Um, or a mirage that you get to and it's not what you thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. But if the goal is to just sell or get as many people on the planet to know about this product and have them use it, and in turn, yes, they will buy it mm-hmm. because there's enough value to buy it. Then I have to think more holistically and say, how can I get this to as many people as possible? Mm-hmm. And then I realize, well, I can still sell it to my website and I can still sell it to Amazon. And then this opportunity for, uh, you know, an alliance, a partnership with with a large company that has a much more robust distribution uh, than I would ever have, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, so that became another piece of the puzzle to how can I get my creation? And then I've also had to step back because it's not going to say, ch- I mean, you know, this brand will be out there and I, I kind of have to, can't say a lot publicly about, you know, the details of it, but it's a brand that you would see, you know, in a hospital or something, and it'll have a different name on it. Um, but if I, once I put my ego aside and say, well, oh, it's not chopsticks, I'm not, no. My, the essence of what I created was this formula, mm-hmm. and I just happened to name it Chopsticks mm-hmm. because it serves this initial marketing purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but if someone comes along and says, that formula is really cool, which is in essence what they said, and we think our customers really like it, and we're going to put our name on it. Well, that happens all the time. It happens in, you know, pizza sauce. It happens the stuff you buy at Trader Joe's and stuff you buy from Kroger. Mm-hmm. The same factory that's putting out Heinz or whatever is probably putting out 
you know, the, the private label for Kobe or, or whoever. Um, so there's nothing new about that. With me as the entrepreneur who put his name and created this product, I kind of had to step back and say, okay, what's, what's the big goal here? The big goal is for my company to put out this goo to where millions, literally millions of people have access to it. Right. So if someone can come along and do that much more, you know, much quicker and much more efficiently than I can, and oh, they're going to call by a different name, I'm good with that. Now, initially, I was, like, hesitant. I think, yeah. gee, I really want to build my brand. Yeah. But what this means is with these, you know, with the additional resources, the financial resources that it gives me, I can start building shops here more uh, the way I'd like to. So, you know, classic win-win. They, they get something they can add to their product line. I get an infusion of, of cash flow that helps my business, yeah. and then I can, I can keep funding the shops here the way I want to. So it's still unfolding. You know, I, I I watch this uh, these shows with um, investors, you know, and and they're seeking out uh, entrepreneurs that, that they don't want to work with. Uh, sometimes they're angel investors. There's sometimes, uh, of course, people who want a stake, and and those they're investing in. And some of the questions, <clears throat> you know, beyond whether the the business is scalable, uh, some of the questions are: Are you willing to adapt? Uh, and in some cases, are you willing to change the name of your business because the branding really is you you know it's not going to quite work um and right. you see right. those people whose whose egos are so um uh invested in the the name um right and and then you see that the the look on the investors faces like this is not somebody i i can work with because right. and you, they can tell unless you're willing to uh, get over the ego. It's like, what's more important, getting your product out there or um, having your face associated with, uh, you know what I mean? The, you don't want to give up the identity of the product. Um, I'm not sure I'm phrasing that the same way, but I, I know you know what I'm right. talking about. And and the people that get the investments are the ones who are willing to adapt or willing to change what needs to be changed to get things out there. And that sounds exactly like what you've just described is, is happening with you. Right, and then, you know what? And I think I think an, uh, an investor, or a, you know, an entrepreneur, that relationship has to be: Are you coachable? Are you, mm -hmm. you know, the greatest athletes are people who have, in, you know, insane talent, but they kept learning. They found right. good teachers, and I, I take that back to you know any of the great players that we would mention, whether it's Wayne or Tom or anybody else. They're going to go through the list of people that helped them along the way. I mean, whether it was Mr. Catalas or Tom or, or Bobby Shue or any people that, that Wayne you know, studied with or hung out with, um, you know, he, he was hungry. He knew he had an ability. They both knew they had, you know, this modicum of talent. But they also said, I just need to learn more. I need to know how to do this better. I need to, you know, that. And they were coachable. They, were, they wanted to learn. And I think a great entrepreneur has to have Yes, he has to have a lot of creativity and a vision mm -hmm. of it because it's really on him or her to finally pull this thing through. But if someone uh, says, I can really help you, I would like to make a couple changes. And then you can negotiate that. If someone came to me and said, um, you know, for me, and I've been having these discussions as we've been transitioning to this new digital 
uh, agencies that we're going to start using, they really haven't said much about, oh, we don't like the color, we're not sure this looks. Or, I, they're willing, you know, I've gotten the brand, I think, uh, well-defined enough that they're willing to work with it. Mm-hmm. Now, if the data shows that as we try to market to um, non-musicians and the, the color's not right or, you know, the image of a turbo player on the package doesn't work anymore, mm-hmm. not, I'm fine with that. I think we're not, as long as, the, you know, we can't, we're not going to call it chop saver. That's where I would say, well, then you're killing the whole story. You're mm-hmm. killing the whole brand if you don't allow me to say the word chop, which is a musical reference, mm-hmm. and, and saver means it's going to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, marketing people, are very, it's very subjective. Um, if, if someone, you know, and marketing people don't tend to be, uh, you know, the money people don't tend to be great marketers sometimes, so I'd be, you know, the people on Shark Tank, maybe, you know, they're maybe, but different, you know, they're there because they were great marketers and, right. and, and they went, you know, through the roof with their invention or their story. Um, but a lot of money people, I just call them money people, mm-hmm. they're not terribly creative. They're, they were creative with money. They were creative with ways to make money mm-hmm. and where they have to kind of trust the entrepreneurs. My gut tells me this will work, this will work. And then they say, Yes, but if you would go, maybe we can you know, tweak this a little bit, adjust this a little bit. I, you know, we've made changes to, to the overall look and feel of the brand, but I think Chopsaver still kind of tells the story. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, besides, at the end of the day, what is a, what's a chap? I mean, what's a Blistex? What's a Carmex? They're meaningless words. They, what's a Kleenex? It's kind of a meaningless word, too. Right. Uh, they just have the, the benefit of being around long enough that those brands are, are so well-known. Um, but I think the minute, I mean, like Bert's bees, I mean, that tells a story. There's a guy mm-hmm. named Bert who had a bunch of bees. Um, their story, I would, I would argue, is not nearly as authentic as mine. If you read any books, or there's a great documentary called Bert's Buzz, which kind of gives you the dirty underbelly of how that, how that uh, business was created. And, I mean, the woman behind it, Bert's, you know, girlfriend at the time, um, I mean, she's, she's a marketing genius, but there was some, you know, there's some damage along the way, <laughs> for sure, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to build that thing the way they built it. Um, so their story is, yeah, this guy named Bert had some bees and they're crazy natural products. My story is still, still pretty much true. I mean, if I had created this brand, the product, you know, yesterday in my kitchen, or if I did it 15 years ago in my kitchen, mm-hmm. that's still pretty much the story mm-hmm. doesn't need to be exaggerated or, or, or embellished. Yeah, I had a, a, you know one of my old students told me how he treated a lip injury from a marching band accident, and he used arnica to uh, treat his lips at the time. And I looked at him like he had three lips. What about arnica? Mm-hmm. I've never heard of this stuff. And that's really how it started. And literally the next day, I, I, was, I was out buying mixing bowls and, and going to the health food store trying to find them on the curb or something else. Um, that's literally how it started. So uh, I think if you were to say, we can't call it chops here, I think well, you're, you're taking away the very essence of this brand yeah. and why, why I'm not chapstick, why I'm not bird speeds, why I'm not Blistex, why this is uh, special. Welcome to the middle of the episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina Covers. They offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags, mouthpiece pouches, and more, and their customer service is excellent. 
be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And now, back to the interview. Well, and it's not exactly, you know, if you think it's coming from a medical standpoint, you know, it's not exactly making a promise, savor, you know, to chop savor. You know, maybe is, is somebody afraid that, you know, it's, it's uh, if you're having a heart attack and you use chop saver, it's going to, it's going to be dying, you know, is, is there a, some sort of false premise there? You know? Well, you know, I just, I just learned that apparently you have to be pretty careful about what you say in your ad. Have you heard about Red Bull? Red Bull had to pay mm. like millions of dollars in a Canadian lawsuit because, you know, Red Bull has this line that gives you wings. Yeah. Red Bull, it gives you wings. Right. Well, because it didn't give this person wings, they sued. And apparently they won. They won some class action lawsuit. Yeah. And, and now... It was probably for like a million dollars, and for Red Bull, it was cheaper for them to just make it go away right. at, a, at, a, at a, whatever the number was, than to to fight it. I mean, that's crazy that someone can, you know, that's when you know, okay, people are, are kind of abusing our legal system here. Like I said, I think it was in Canada, but this literally just came up like a week ago. Someone told me, yeah. oh yeah, they actually got sued for that line. Now back to Saber, I did talk to someone recently said. Saver, that might be kind of a value term, like saving money. Or I was like, okay, well, let's 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 see how this plays out. I think no pun intended. I think I think um, you know I've I've stood in. You, know, you mentioned medical. We you know we've taken this product to the medical people. We do have a medical fan base. And I've been and I've I've had a booth at Midwest and at IPG, and I've had a booth at the American Academy of Dermatology which is a completely different experience. Mm-hmm. But what I did learn, and this was where my life's you know, innate sense of marketing came through, the first time we went to one of those conventions, I tried to be like all those other companies, mm-hmm. not realizing that, wait a minute, you've just, you just buried the lead. You've just taken the thing that made you interesting and, and thrown it away. So that, that, those first couple, mm-hmm. uh, that first uh, experience at a medical convention was a little bit awkward. Because I was trying to be all medically or something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then the next time I went with my trumpet, and then we changed the branding so that my face is on it, and, and I started playing my trumpet at the booth, and then mm-hmm. obviously that was made me more interesting than all the people walking around in, in white lab coats that were trying to impress all these doctors mm-hmm. by looking like doctors. I was there looking as a trouble player, and when you market to uh, doctors, thankfully many of them are love the arts. They're mm-hmm. smart people, and they usually have kids that are musicians or they were musicians themselves who were translating to the to the um, other market from the musician world was mm-hmm. was quite easy. And, um, and I'm very thankful for that because sometimes you try to take a product into a new market and it just, again, no pun intended, it doesn't resonate. Um, but in the medical world, it hasn't it hasn't proven to be a big issue. Now, if we start taking it into the outdoor people, um, which we'd like to do, or, you know, the, the female consumers or the moms, we'll see. I, I, I've been in enough conversations though, with people that, generally speaking, they're phone chops. I like that. It's catchy. It's, I, it's cute. It's fun. Um, I, someone would have to really show me some hard data that this name, that the basic name of the product is somehow uh, needs to be adjusted or changed. That would be a, a hard sell for me. Again, well. 
that's why I have to look at, is that just my heart speaking, or is that 15 years of, of real data that's telling me that that, that, that so-called expert I'm sitting across the table from, right. even if they had a million dollars for the in debt, I let them say, you don't get this. You know, this is where my vision is going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I think you take a, some sort of focus group and you put this in front of them. And, you know, it shouldn't be a focus group of musicians because we all get it, right? We all know exactly what this is about. Right. You know, yeah. and, and it's yeah. like if you put this in front of uh, the general public, uh, you know, what kind of reactions do you get? What kind of feelings uh, do, do, does it elicit? What, right? I mean, isn't that kind of the idea is to see, uh, you know, does right. somebody think, oh, my gosh, it's going to give me wings. I can fly, and they jump out the window. And yeah. It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Right. So. And but you also have to make sure you you, you want to get the market's impression, and they will vote with their dollars. But at the same time, if you're a, a really good marketer, I believe, if you're telling the story right, and sometimes you've got three seconds to tell that story, sometimes you've got three minutes to tell that story. But if, if you're piecing together a story about your brand, and you're educating and you're telling that story properly, the consumer should get it. It's not on them to figure it out. If they can't figure it out, that's, then you've failed somehow. And by the same, you know, someone like Jobs, you know, Apple, people didn't care. I was like, oh, the next Apple product is coming out. I'm going to sleep in a sleeping bag and, and line up because I'm just so, I, I just trust them so much. Now, I'm not Steve Jobs. I'm not saying that I am, but I'm just saying that if your job as a marketer is to explain the value, explain why this product will help them, mm -hmm. and then if, if you have something that's really going to help people, it's really your duty to get that out to as many people as possible. If you have a crappy product, good luck to you. <laughs> that's, a different, <laughs> you know, that's a different sell. You might sell it one time, but you probably won't sell it you know, more than one time. But, you know, I think back at like, the whole journey of this, and it's, it's odd that it was seemingly um, jumping out into creating this product. And yet, you know, I've always had issues with my jobs. And people reminded me when I started doing this, oh, yeah, Dan, you were always carrying around, you know, I think it was probably just Vaseline in a tube when I was in college. Um, and, and when I was in college, it was like Carmex or nothing. There was not much else to choose from other than, you know, Burt's Bees was just coming along. Um, and I also saw people you kind of struggle. And I saw people in pretty high positions struggle. So I think somehow deep in my psyche that, again, I'm, and I'm not saying Chop Saver is a replacement for good sound wrestling technique or good playing habits, or good practice habits. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm also, you know, willing to talk about the subject of, of overuse syndrome, of musicians not treating themselves the way, with the same delicacy, should I say, as, as maybe um, the way athletes do. Um, you know, some people, don't, some people have a problem with the musician-athlete comparison, but I think there's enough of them Mm -hmm. At least in the context that I'm discussing, you're using a muscle, you're using some finely tuned muscles, and you're putting them under stress over long periods of time, mm -hmm. um, just like an athlete does. And if you aren't understanding that, you're going to get into trouble. Mm -hmm. And I know you know great players that have gotten into trouble, and you see it with young players who don't really know what they're doing, 
and they've got a band director who he or she doesn't really know what they're doing or saying sometimes. Not all of them. You know, I think that is improving as well. I think, I think pedagogy in general, because of the Internet, it has to get better. If you're paying attention at all, you're going to start seeing who the successful people are and who, and who aren't. Um, and not that there's only one way of doing things. What I'm just saying is the, the you know, we all get into trouble sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I think I got into trouble maybe more than the average person did when I was in college. I had, you know, five different teachers in my undergrad. I had great teachers, but I had five of them. Um, it was kind of a revolving door at the time at the University of Illinois. It was a great time to be there, but also kind of a um, a weird time to be there. Sure. Um, and so, uh, you know, for example, uh, David David Hickles, my my first college teacher, and he, you know, he's David. You know, what a legacy! What a great great player and colleague, and and, and put out so many great students. Um, and I'm honored to be, you know, one of them. I only studied with him for a year and a half. Um, he was on sabbatical for one of those semesters, and then he did go to Arizona State prior to my junior year. Um, but he did it, and, you know, I don't think I'm talking about school year, because it was a public event, and I wasn't the only person there. <laughs> David played a recital um, that was not very good, and um, this was my freshman or sophomore year. And he was pretty... Um, um, yeah, it was weird because at the time, I mean, David was one of those just like automatic. I mean, he was rock solid. He had chops for days, could do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so he couldn't. Suddenly it was like not happening. And it happened in a, in a recital. And you know, he couldn't, I mean, I would say, you know, for those kind of, thank God the internet didn't exist then. I mean, who knows what might have happened. I mean, seriously, I hadn't even thought about this, but, you know, what if David's Recital had gotten out where he was kind of scuffling a little bit. Could that have really hurt his career long term? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Could that have hurt him as a teacher long term? I don't know. He handled it with great, I will say, great uh, dignity and grace, and he was very upfront with all of us students because he knew we'd all seen this this thing happen, and he realized he needed to, you know, address some things. As it turns out, he he had lost a lot of weight. And this is something Wayne, this, I see this thing happening when I was sophomore in college. Mm-hmm. And the same thing came up when I interviewed Wayne, you know, last year. Um, if you lose a lot of weight, you know, I've always been, a, you know, slim, thanks to my mother's genes. But, so I, I never had to deal with this. But mm-hmm. if you ever lost a lot of weight, you're going to lose weight everywhere. You know, you're going to lose a little muscle mass in your, in your face, in your lips. And David felt great because he lost lost all his weight, but it affected his strength. And he got, I'm not going to speak to all the details of it because I didn't live it. I just, I do remember it well enough that it it did affect his strength. And he had to kind of figure some things out. Um, And he also, at the time, what started as a physical problem would turn into a mental problem. Mm -hmm. And he went to a hypnotist. He, was, he found a hypnotist right there in Champaign, Urbana, that really helped him out. Really mm-hmm. helped him get past his mental hurdles of whatever had popped up in his head mm-hmm. and made him believe again. And of course, you know, he went on to his, you know, his career again. Someone persevered. Yeah. Someone, whether it was Tom or Wayne or David Hickman, persevered through this 
this side journey of, of, right. of chopped hell um, and got through it and came out strong on the other end. And then, and in turn, he had something more to offer as a teacher. I think it made him a better teacher. I think it made him more empathetic as a teacher. And I, gave, I think it gave him, I know it gave him more tools. Because when he told me about what helped him through this, this trauma was this hypnosis, mm-hmm. boy, what do you think I saw the next week? I went and saw that same hypnosis. Um, and so that's how I started getting into, okay, how the mental side of pretty much everything, <laughs> the mental side of playing the trumpet, the mental mm-hmm. side of building a business, the mental side of being in a marriage, the mental side of being a father, it's all there. Mm-hmm. It's really the first part. And people that don't understand that are really, um, they are going into things, you know, not with a, all their, all their, you know, arrows in the quiver. You're, you're, you're trying to do something without a huge piece of the puzzle. So what David did for me, it was under, you know, kind of opened up the whole mental aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he went out to Arizona State and studied some with uh, Ray Sasaki um, and Michael Tunnel. You know, dear Michael, as such a great friend and colleague of so many people um, that we lost so tragically way too soon, a couple of years back. Think about Mike all the time. You know, he was at Illinois at the time. So I had a really interesting mix of people there, but I was probably playing too much. Uh, I was playing in like every ensemble. Now, did that help me as a freelancer later in my career? Sure, it did. Mm-hmm. It made me versatile. It made me adaptable. If I could play any style, I could play in any environment, with brass quintet or orchestra or band. But it stressed me. It stressed me out. And I didn't realize that. I think that was fun. I'm supposed to be doing it, right? I'm supposed mm-hmm. to be playing in all these ensembles and getting better. And, and, um, and then was, you know, fortunate that I, you know, for example, I, I was, I played well enough to get into Northwestern for my master's. Um, but my senior recital is something no one will ever hear. I don't, if I, if I find that tape, I will burn it. My senior recital sucked. Because of because of these ups and downs that I kept going through, mm-hmm. and I would say it wasn't until my the year with Mr. Chickowitz that a lot of that stuff just kind of found me went away. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a system, uh, a grandfatherly at that time just approach, uh, just such a such a mentor, and such an incredible mentor and such mm-hmm. an incredible teacher that again he called my mind before he even calmed my lips <laughs> or told my lips. Wow. You know, and, you know, that, that approach, and I think anyone who ever studied with him would say the same thing. It was yeah. just his presence and his calm demeanor. You didn't even realize it, mm-hmm. but he was working on you the minute you walked in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean, he, you know, if you played badly, he didn't like it, but he, he was demanding. But mm-hmm. there was a, a demeanor that was just like, ah, okay. And I, and I just took a breath just like you take a breath mm-hmm. properly to play an instrument. It's the same way you take a breath when you you're in a place that makes you feel calm and a place mm-hmm. that makes you feel like, okay, think everything's going to work out. Mm-hmm. And they did work out. That year was, was incredible for me. But, you know, I saw, I saw David struggle. I saw, I was, it's, it's odd. And I'm just kind of rambling. If you need to tell me to stop, just tell me to stop. But, well, it's okay. I haven't pushed record yet, so we're all good. <laughs> <laughs> so we may have to go back and, yeah. and cover some of the stuff. Yeah. Again, <laughs> No, this is this is fantastic. Well, I mean, I'm going to interject this just for a second. It's taken me forever to yeah. get this interview with you, because you're like, I don't have anything to say. Well, 
I think you've just proven in so many ways uh, what you've got to offer. There are going to be people out there, and, and people will hear this, but people are going to hear this who are entrepreneurs, and it may not resonate right away, but when they get somewhere down the line, they're going to remember, oh yeah, the chop saver guy, he endured this, he was talking about this, or these uh, teachers and situations that you're talking about, you know, people are going to hear this, and you have a story to tell, multiple stories to tell, that are that are fantastic, and and I have some questions, you know, I, I want to keep going and, and asking some other things about some other areas, but no, this is, this is all been exactly what I had hoped for, and, and we have well, the recording, you know, it's... Well, it's funny. I mean, um, that's kind of you saying that. And, you know, I, I was, I saw where you were going with some of these incredible players, and I thought, okay, if people want to know how to play, you know, Larry's lining them up. Those are the people to talk to. If people are interested in just a more holistic, you know, what is a what is a career in music look like? What if I wanted to do something different? What would I need to do? Yeah, I, I've got maybe some things to offer there. And I think this interesting parade of of characters and great players and people of great integrity that I, you know, that I think sometimes my, my career is, and, and this is not like a ego thing, it's just where I was placed in the timeline of, of, of trumpet history, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, you know, enough ability to be part of it. But, you know, my first teacher was Jerry Nipfel, and he was a great, great player in his own right. Um, and he would bring in uh, Marvin Stan and Alan Bazzuti and Lou Soloff. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I just, at an early age, I was like, wow, those guys are cool. That looks like a fun thing to do for a living. And, I, you know, I, I played with Alan Bazzuti when Alan was like 23 or something, mm-hmm. and I got the pictures to prove it. So that's where it kind of all started. Um, yeah, I was pretty good in high school and junior. I was I was really good. But then, even then, I had ups and downs. Even then, Jerry would, would tell you that, yeah, you know, you had that time when you, the mafia's got too far down on your lip and you were you know, cheating to get the high notes out. And, um, it was always kind of just in this up and down thing with my, with my face, and that's probably why I got so interested in this. What can I do to, again, what makes you play the best is, you know, all the proper things, proper rest, proper hydration, proper practice technique, warm-ups, all those things. Um, but why did I get interested in something that, that helps people? And by creating something that helps trumpet players, as we talked about earlier, the product is now being used by non-musicians with really amazing benefits. Mm-hmm. So isn't that cool? The way this all kind of grew. So that, you know, the movie Force Gump, the Force, he's like, in, he's like inserted in all these incredible historic events, like there he is with Lyndon Johnson, and there he is in the war. And there is, you know, I so I studied with David Hickman, who's who's in like seventh or eighth grade in the practice rooms at U of I when I was there, but Paul Markello, because Paul Markello you know, oh, grew no up kidding. in Champaign. <laughs> Paul grew up in Champaign, and I still remember like yesterday, I can see this kid, you know. In the in the practice, and I thought, oh, he sounds pretty good. I think he's, I think he's, I think he was playing with Ray Sataki at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, he, and he's got braces, and he's, I mean, how does he make that work? And, and you know, and then he comes out, you know, he's principal some of the Montreal season. Um, and I was also fortunate enough to be at Illinois when David Bilcher was a, just a year ahead of me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always say he was a year ahead of me in, in chronologically, but you know, 
decades ahead of all of us as a player. <laughs> right. You know, I heard David Bilger play the, the first time I heard the Tomasi live was David Bilger playing it with, mm. I think, with the orchestra. He won the concerto competition, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, Jesus, I don't, I, I mean, I didn't, I've never heard the trumpet played like that. <laughs> Certainly not by someone my age. Um, and he's now principal trumpet of Philadelphia Orchestra. I mean, there were great players at Illinois at the time. Bruce Bryant, a good friend and colleague. Um, and I was fortunate enough to kind of squeeze into the Northwestern studio. And that was a time, you know, people like Tom Rawls had just finished up and Charlie Duvall had, had finished up mm-hmm. a couple years before. And I was like, wow. Um, you know, then I moved to Indianapolis and I played with some great people here and learned, you know, so much just like on the job. And, and, mm-hmm. and again, someone like Larry Wiseman, Larry isn't looking at a household name, but man, Larry could just flat out play the trumpet. And people that knew Larry um, or ever worked with him, mm-hmm. you know, would attest to that. And, and what a great soon, person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Larry died when he was, geez, 57, and it's mm-hmm. been well over 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all still miss him to this day because he had such a presence, he had mm-hmm. such a, a humor, and um, yeah, and could play anything. Mm-hmm. You know, then I was fortunate enough to play a lot in the Cincinnati Symphony, and the section at that time was, was Phil Collins and Steve Pride and Charlie Duvall and Louis Speciali. I mean, I get chills just thinking about it. I mean, I got to do some recording sessions with them, and I got to do some opera and a lot of the pop stuff in the summer. So, yeah, and then, and then when and Tom Hooten moves to town. Right. I mean, who's this Tom Hooten kid? Um, I was literally next to Tom the first time he played principal trumpet in an orchestra. <laughs> no, no <laughs> so I, I've had this weird, you know, um, front row seat of some amazing, amazing players. And and then Drew Chopsaver, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't I've never played with Wayne, but you know, Wayne is a is a friend and a lot of other people I've met because of Chopsaver that are monster players and monster teachers. Mm-hmm. And that's just really, really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, that's the first time Tom I mean, Tom was hired as assistant third assistant principal. And um yeah, what, if it wasn't if it wasn't the first time it was one of the one of the very first times when we say, Hey Tom, you're playing me tonight was on a uh, you know, people in Indianapolis when I say Yuletide celebration and know what I'm talking about. It's the right. big Christmas deal that the Indianapolis Symphony does for the whole month every year. Mm-hmm. Um and, and Tom was, was gonna play principal that night and I was seven. And and Tom was like getting psyched up, you like, okay. And I I distinctly he may not realize this, but I know he said, Okay. You're not playing third trumpet tonight, Tom. You're playing first trumpet. He was he was getting himself in the zone. He was he was on leading, mm-hmm. and it was a big deal to him. And look what he's done since then. I mean, yeah, that was a great job, and he's just crushed it since then. And and now he's putting out you know content on Instagram every day. He's it's, you know he's he's so giving with his time. I keep thinking, I even commented once on one of his Instagram posts. I said. This would be like if I could have watched Adolf Hersey practice every mm-hmm. day, which I couldn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we can't. You're literally letting us see you practice every day. This is just mind-blowing. Yeah. And, of course, you know, when I was under there, I kind of aged myself here, but I went to Illinois with the B-flat trumpet. I didn't start knowing about C trumpets and transposing and the pickle mm-hmm. trumpet until, you know, sophomore, junior year of college. Kids now, they've got those things you know, either they own the instrument or they can kind of play them, and some can play, play really, really well. So, 
I'm glad I'm, in some ways, I've stepped aside as a player and finding new ways to, you know, have a message and be effective and help people. Yeah, but you know, uh, you're being self-deprecating, but uh, you're you're still an absolutely fantastic player. You know, every time we get to sit next to each other, whether it's the studio or uh, maybe the symphony, um, it, it, it's a treat. And and you know, um, so I'm going to tell people, of course, uh, you were a teacher for me uh, for a semester at Butler when I was working on my master's. Right. And uh, I thought you were the dumbest thing <laughs> I had ever encountered. Like, what are these flow studies? What the heck are you having me work on? I, you know, you know, what so are these? And, you know, what are these flow studies? And yeah. I look back now and I think, man, I was an idiot. But um, I still have the folder you gave me with all the, all the. Uh, the flow studies that you had probably photocopied from your time at. Oh, I know. I mean, when when you think about all the all the stuff that and, and people are are doing a much better job now. I mean, whether it's Mr. Chicklet's son Mike or right. you know people that really spent a lot of time with him, like Bruce and, and some other people, they're trying to kind of collate that and trying to you yeah. know preserve the flow studies that yeah. they were. And I know Charlie Geyer and Robert Butler. Um, I mean, that, and that reminds me, and again, when I think about. You know, in high school, I studied with Stephen Jones, and Stephen was mm-hmm. his stalwart at the ITG and a great, great player. Mm-hmm. But I had the similar experience when I studied with Stephen. He had me doing stuff, and I was like, it was so different than what I'd been doing with my first teacher. But it wasn't things that really made sense to me until I was freelancing. Mm-hmm. Because people would always say, man, you play in tune. And I thought, oh, I just got a good ear, but... Stephen Jones would just drill on pitch and mm-hmm. intonation, and, and we would just play long tone and blend sound and buzz and do this, mm-hmm. God, this mind-numbingly boring stuff. But that was my ticket as a freelancer. You're kind of saying what you said about music player, but there are a lot more people with more chops, more virtuos, you know, virtuosity. Mm-hmm. But the reason I worked, and I would say this to anyone who wants to work as a musician, the reason I was able to work at all is because I could make a section sound better. Mm-hmm. I played a fair amount of you know, principal trumpet when I had to, but that's not that was not really what I was best at. Um, I could do it when I had to, um, and you know, play principal in the like Indianapolis Chamber for many years. But mm-hmm. playing in a section, knowing, hearing the style, hearing the blend, making everyone sound a little bit better because I'm part of that section. Those are things that Stephen taught me. He wasn't saying to me, I'm doing this so that you'll sound... He was just like trying to get me to open up my ears. Mm-hmm. And it was... And um, yeah, that was... Again, he's, he's, like you said, I was giving you things that you're like, what is this crap? Mm-hmm. But when I think back on you know, that pile of video... Uh, of Xeroxes of, of photocopies of Mr. Chicklets, mm-hmm. uh, and I see it you know, up in other people's... You know, online now you see there's PDFs of it now. It's, mm-hmm. It warms my eyes. I think, wow, I remember I've got that same thing with his actual right. writing on it and right. things like that. Well, you I'm... know, and then, and then many years later, I, I studied with Charlie Geyer mm-hmm. um, in for, you know, preparing for an audition. So there's a lot of, so many things kind of have come full circle. Mm-hmm. So that's, and now I feel like, yeah, I can give back in a different way now. <laughs> but yeah, I remember, I remember, you were, because you studied with great people. You studied with, um, well, you know, Vince well, Martino, and, and, and you had all kinds of chops. And I, I just thought, well, I'm not going to teach you how to play high notes. 
he does that better than I do. Uh, what can I what can I offer him? And that's kind of how I used to try to teach was um, if someone already had an ability, and I would you know I would have students that could do things better than me more innately, and I would say, okay, I'm not going to mess with that. But their timing's not real clear, or they don't know the first thing about fight me, or they don't you know they they're consistently out of tune whenever we get beyond you know three flats and three sharps. Why is that? Oh, okay, they literally don't know how to use their slide. And this could be a college kid or a, you know, even a, a young professional. So I'm glad that had an influence on you. Uh, well, and, that... and I will say I didn't think you were an idiot for very long. You know, it... it... <laughs> Uh, things things uh, changed very quickly, and you know, I look back, and this is where hindsight really is twenty twenty. Is you, I look back and I think you were exactly who I should have studied with that semester. You know, you had an effect on me beyond what was going on there. And you know, I remember, of course, this is before cell phones. We're we're talking uh, mid nineties for this, early mid nineties. Right. And I remember uh, I only had a B flat when I went into my master's. I didn't, in fact, you sold me my first uh, good C trumpet. It was a Benj. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I, I remember calling you. I was working on Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. I kept blacking out in the fifth movement. And uh, I'm like, Dan, what's going on? And you're like, well, where are you breathing? I'm like, breathing? What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, <laughs> And, oh, uh, yeah, that thing you have to do right. <laughs> to play the German. Right. You know, and I remember, but, you know, I, I already respected you enough. I mean, I'd, I'd heard you play with the chamber orchestra uh, and with the ISO, and I'd heard you play, you know, of course, in lessons. And I'm, I think I was finally coming around to, and maybe this guy knows what he's knows what he's talking about. But, uh, no, uh, you know, and, and I'm going to just lay some more praise uh, your way. I just, you know, I, I appreciate you as a colleague. Um, still, and, and a teacher. Every time I sit next to you, I still feel like, okay, that's the sound. You know, that's if, and you're right. You you sit in a section, you make everything better. And uh, so I really appreciate that, that you're still contributing, not just with Chop Saber, you know, but with your uh, your musicality. So thanks for well, doing that. Well, you're, you're, you're very kind. It does, it is harder and harder. I mean, I literally, as Chop Saber ebbs and flows, uh, there were times where, you know, Man, I did. I wouldn't play literally for months, mm. and then I would realize, oh, Easter's coming up, or the summer season with the symphony's coming up, and I bet they're going to need to try. I'd like to put in a little, you know, some time. And, mm. and by this time, I was relying on, you know, obviously not great chops, but experience, mm-hmm. and I was practicing, practicing less, but I was practicing way smarter mm-hmm. than I ever did as an undergrad or even as a young professional where I was just kind of pounding away um, and getting bruised and then, you know, just kind of back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. And that's where, you know, when I would talk to people like Wayne or even Tom or other people, I was like, okay, I'm not alone in this. It's just some other, some people have figured it out a little better. And it was really, you know, back to the teachers that, you know, really had an impression on me. At the time I sat with Charlie Geyer, you know, I didn't win that audition. In fact, you know, you know, piece of this puzzle, people want to really know, you know, I was playing a lot with Indianapolis Symphony to the point where they offered me a, a year contract mm-hmm. before Tom came, and that actually turned into three years. I actually had three one-year contracts as a section player with the ISO, and of course, the audition finally was scheduled, and the fateful day came, and, and Tom Hooten showed up, <laughs> and, and you know, I was like, I'm kidding, now you took my job. Um, and, you know, as 
as painful as that was, because here I had this job for three years. Mm-hmm. I had a young child at the time, and, and my, love, my, love, my dear life was a, is still a freelance musician, and we thought mm-hmm. it wouldn't be great if one of us had a full-time gig mm-hmm. with salary and benefits, <laughs> which I had for two years. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, and then the, the audition came on, and, and I gave it my best. I prepared you know, as one you would expect when you're trying to defend what you thought was your job, mm-hmm. the job of a lifetime, as it were, because I loved Indianapolis. We were all established in a house, all this stuff. And then Tom comes along and just literally blows us all away. Yeah. And they made the right choice. Tom was the right person and I was not. But as I was leading up for the, getting right to audition, I spent a lot of time with Charlie Geyer. Mm-hmm. And what I learned from Charlie, did, it, did I win the audition? No. Okay, so here's where we had a little bit of a glitch. Dan lost his signal and called me back. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be the best segue back in, but here we go. Did your phone die? Um, no, my phone still functioning. It just had lost signal for some reason. Oh, weird. The universe telling me to shut up that I'm going on and on too long. No, I, but at least now I can do an official welcome to the podcast. <laughs> uh, you know, you were working on this audition. You were studying with Charlie Geyer, and even though you didn't win, you felt that studying with Charlie, and that's where I lost you. Right. So I'm preparing for this audition. Obviously, it was on me to to try to you know to win the audition, but and I'd hoped that my time with Charlie, um, with and and the time I had with Charlie was was so important because no, I didn't win the job, uh, but the things he taught me were what sustained me as a player for many many years after that, mm-hmm. because I was going to suddenly start being um, an entrepreneur and starting a business and also have to play. And I would go through periods where I wasn't playing as much or wasn't practicing as much. But the efficiencies and some of the things that he taught me, again, I didn't win that audition, but what he taught me helped me down the road mm-hmm. so much. Mm-hmm. And, and to your point about when you said, Dan, you were the teacher I needed at the time, I think when people look at how things unfold for them, things don't always seem to make sense at the moment, but then you look back and say, mm-hmm. oh, wow, that was the exact person I needed yep. to meet, or that's the exact person I needed to be influenced by or I needed to hear those words, I needed to spend that time with that person to get me here and here and here. And sometimes you realize it in the moment, a lot of times you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you have to kind of like put your ego aside and say, okay, what am I supposed to learn here? Mm-hmm. What, what's what's the message I'm trying to be told, taught here? I was thinking about, sorry, I was just thinking about, you know, you were joking about you wanted me to do this for such a long time. And I was putting it off because I knew you were interviewing all these great players. But I started thinking about, okay, when I do talk to Larry, I would like to kind of use it as a, as a, as a shout-out, as a personal with, you know, gratitude yeah. to all these people I just mentioned, whether it was David yeah. Hicklin or my first teacher or Stephen or any of my colleagues, including you. Um, you know, I've really been blessed to have great mentors and teachers mm-hmm. and, and colleagues, people to play with. Otherwise, this would have just been a real drag of a career <laughs> for the last mm-hmm. years. And it hasn't. It's really been, um, it's really been a career that I'm, I'm, I'm quite proud of. And yeah. again, having been in the same ensemble with a David Bulger or be able to sub with an orchestra like Cincinnati and, and play with those amazing players. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, the, the, and then I'm fortunate enough to be close to a place like Indiana University, and you and, you and I both, we get to play with people like you know, John Rommel, yeah. um, Ed Cord, and John was a big influence. You know, I used to sub not only with Cincinnati, but I slept a lot in Louisville, actually, when mm-hmm. John was principal in Louisville. Mm-hmm. And man, I learned a lot of, you know, what it means to play with, you know, with a, with a, just a band and a huge sound and, mm-hmm. and a, you know, kind of a devil may care attitude. I mean, and again, a great, great quality individual, mm-hmm. you know, dear friend. Um, so many people I just I just I mean, don't want to leave anybody out. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I probably I'm sure I did, but anyone I've ever had, you know, has helped me along the way or had any, you know, contributed any way to my my, you know, career as a performer, as a teacher, mm-hmm. I'll just kind of use your, your platform to say thank you to all of them. So this is the kind of guy Dan Gosling is. After the interview, he realized he forgot to mention Joey Tartell and giving him credit for uh, what he's contributed to his career and said, hey, can we do another interview? And I'll mention his, his name, get the credit in there. I said, sure. And there was no real great way to excerpt that next phone call and get that in here. So... I put it in and then sent him a copy to listen to. He listens. He goes, oh, my gosh, I forgot Chappie, Marvin Perry, and Bob Wood. Can you add those guys back in there, too? So I said, sure, no problem. So on behalf of Dan Gosling, I'm putting those three guys back in there. It just, again, goes to show that Dan wants to make sure that uh, everybody who has had a significant contribution to uh, his career here in Indianapolis and beyond uh, gets the credit and recognition they deserve. So, back to the interview. And I, I have to put this in real quick. My my teacher Jerry Nipfel, mm-hmm. who's still active as a teacher up in Elkhart, um, finally put together a little trumpet method. And if anyone's looking for like, you know, how do I start a a beginner? Now, there's a lot of beginner method books mm-hmm. out there, but he finally put one together, and he got it published by Center Stream. They're actually a division of Hal Leonard. And um, it's called ASAP Trumpet Method. So if anyone's looking for a new resource for a young player, you might check that out. The ASAP Trumpet Method by Gerald Mitchell. Now, yeah. it's in the first printing. Um, there's a couple of glitches in, in, on some of the pages. Where you can tell it's oh, they left a line out there or something like that. But mm-hmm. it's a nice little resource. So I just, again, as a tribute to my very first trumpet teacher, I want to make sure that I say yeah. that. Man, you know, uh, I didn't have to ask uh, any questions. I think you you covered everything, you know, and this is, of course, this is not a gearhead podcast, so we're not going to get into what mouthpiece and and that sort of thing. No, there's so many many people that do that better than I do and and Mm -hmm. have better opinions than I do. So that's that's why you're you're building a really great library, a really great resource for people. Yeah, thanks. and I applaud you. I applaud you for doing that. And the way, you know, when you said you're going to do a podcast, I said, yeah, okay. Um, and I don't judge because I, you know, I, I, I set out on a crazy thing and, and I wouldn't want anyone to judge what I've done. So I say, you got an idea, go for it. But what I've seen you do in the what year that you've been doing this? Uh, year almost two half? years. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you, you know, you, you didn't, you know, you set your sights high and you, you figured out how do I get around these people? You're obviously not bashful about asking anyone. And again, we're we're in a world where people are generally willing to help and, right. and want to help out. Right. Um, but you're also talking with 
you know, people who are very busy and, and, and a little bit of ego involved, mm-hmm. the way you've gone about it and the people that you've been able to, to get in touch with and, and get this thing going. And, and I applaud you. I think it's great. Well, I appreciate you know, that. It to be. I, I have to tell you, I've got one coming up. Uh, Mark Inouye, principal of San Francisco. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he finally replied uh, just yesterday, and he's like, why do you want to talk to me? <laughs> I think, you know, here's another Dan Gosling, you know, it's like, what have I got to offer out there? You know, and, and I, I replied to his email. I said, well, Mark, I think you've got a pretty good story to tell, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and going beyond, you know, the multiple auditions out there. But, uh, you know, everybody's got everybody's got something to share. And, you know, how cool is it that we have access? You know, you were talking about uh, listening to Bud Herseth rehearse. You know, I mean, we literally have the opportunity to do just that um, right. you know, and to get into contact now with anybody. And I, I will say I'm disappointed. I reached out to uh, Chuck Manjoan. Uh, <laughs> well, you're, you're OK. Why are you laughing? I'm curious. Uh, well, I gotta admit, you know, I'm old enough that I remember, you know, when Chuck Manjoan, I, I really don't know Chuck. I never met him. Yeah. I don't really know. And as a person, and I've heard some stories, mm-hmm. but, you know, he was this dude that managed to be a, like a, 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 a pop star on a flu horn right. in the, you know, in the late 70s. I mean, right. it's still, and I, didn't he get into a, didn't they include him in a, in a Simpsons episode or a South Park or what? Um, There's something. King <laughs> there, of the Hill. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it was it was one maybe of those. Maybe King of the Hill. Right. Yeah, it was King of the Hill. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, no, I mean, he's just kind of a, you know, this icon, you know, in in trumpet history. It was someone that that and Maynard kind of did it too, you mm-hmm. know, with Rocky and all that. But but Maynard had a lot more what I call like natural star power behind him, mm-hmm. where it kind of made sense, you know. But and Chuck was just like this. And yeah, you know, I was a high school at the time. We thought it was super cool and just, you know, feels so good with a, with a hit song. That's, that's why I chuckled. Well, I chuckled because it reminds me of my, my youth more than anything. Well, but see, he was my very first live concert, 1979, Louisville, Kentucky. Really? I went and, and, uh, another trumpet player friend of mine from high school, we went and heard this guy. And, uh, same with, you know, I grew up listening to Herb Alpert on recordings that my parents had had. And I'm in, I'm trying to get in touch with him, you know, through his management. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, a lot of the young players have no clue who this guy is. Oh, I know. Yeah. And yeah. but he's still out there playing and he's into art and sculpture. And it's like I want to talk to him about that, you know, and, and trying to get get in contact with him is uh, sometimes it's more of a challenge than others. You know, I mean, you you've probably experienced that same thing trying to reach out. Uh, to people. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, people that are uh, older, that are that are not as used to, you know, the in-your-face world of social media and what that means, and, mm-hmm. and certainly, I mean, Herb Alpert, golly, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to embarrass him or myself by guessing his age, but, you know, Herb's, Herb's been around for a while, and, and what a, you know, what a legend. Right. Not just a legend. I mean, in, in the music business, Period, mm-hmm. um, and if you could get you know even ten minutes with that guy, right. uh, go for it. Right. That would be you know that would be awesome. I I would I would love to hear that. Man, this this has been this has been a blast. Uh, finally, finally get you on the phone, get to talk to you. 
Studio HFL would like to welcome today uh, to the podcast, uh, Dan Gosling, <laughs> a little bit after the fact. Um, hey, Dan, what does the HFL stand for in Studio HFL? Higher, faster, louder. Yeah, Everyone okay. knows that, okay. right? Well, you say that, but that's not true. Not everybody knows that. You win. So I'm, I'm going to send you a t-shirt. You got that right. I'll send you a t-shirt. Oh, I've, I've got one of your t-shirts. Oh, good. And, but, and I've got one of your ball caps, right? I should have. Oh, yeah. nobody's going to know. I, I, I've been wearing it this whole time through this podcast. So, do you need me to do any? Do you need to do a drop? Do we need to like do an intro? Like, hey, thanks for having me on, Larry. And then patch it in. You tell me what you need. I mean, you're, 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 when you're editing this, if you want to. Well, I, as free as this has been, I, I think I got everything I need. Honestly, and okay. I, and, and I'm, I, I kind of like the way that we just jumped right into thing. Are, are you are you a fan of Tony Robbins? You know, the reason I, I brought Tony up was uh, I listened to his podcast. One of the very first things in the first podcast was it was simply, are you complaining about a lack of resources or are you being resourceful? Right. So you can complain about, I don't have this, I don't have this. Or you can look at, and say, well, I've got this. What's the most I can do with this? It, yep. it's a, and, and, and that's how it works. Which I have tried to, uh, you know, in my own practice and my own teaching and even with, with students is to say, you can complain that you don't have this book or that book, but what have you got? <laughs> you know, um, put your horn up and practice. It, it's not the, you know, it's not exactly apples to apples, but uh, I think the phrase stands pretty strongly. You know, you can, you can complain about the lack of resources uh, or you can be resourceful. Yeah, and that's and that's you know that's another way of saying everything is survivable. It's 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 mindset, and it's it's a, if you're a victim, you know it's kind of it's are you vic, are you looking at the world as a victim or are you looking at the world as something that's working mm-hmm. with you or through you even? Um, and are you open to that idea? And some people are. It, it's they'd rather complain, yeah, um, than you know figure it out. Yeah, as, as Mary said. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to think of an ethical way to, and especially since we, we're not supposed to be around each other, um, for you to wait, walk. Wait, wait, is, is my restraining what? order still intact? Is that what you're referring to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were, you and I were social distancing. Right before, yeah. <laughs> court ordered. Well, it became a, was court ordered law. <laughs> um, I, I'd, I'd like you to, and again, you know, she, and this is a marketing thing she does. She, she for B school, as she calls it, is not open year long. Mm-hmm. He does a big marketing push. There's a deadline. You have to commit. Mm-hmm. That's all marketing 101. Creates an urgency. But there's a reason she does it. She mm-hmm. does it to, here's our class of B schoolers for this year. And they're in it. But the cool thing about it is you have access to her class forever. Mm. You can take it. You can take it in perpetuity. And I've read tons of testimonials. I started doing B-School in 2010. I do it every year. I learn something new every year. Because she refreshes it. She updates it. Mm-hmm. You know, you grow as a business person. You you know, the modules that didn't really fit because you were just starting out. Mm-hmm. Now modules four and five and six have a lot more meaning to mm-hmm. you now that you've been at it for a couple of years. That kind of thing. So when it does come around in next spring, you know, it's what, it's what you've seen of her kind of resonates. In the meantime, yeah. with what you've consumed of her free of her free content, mm-hmm. yeah, I would strongly encourage you. Anyway, and then it's like two thousand dollars, but it's six weeks of very intensive, you know, mm-hmm. trainings. There's worksheets. There's there's accountability kind of built into it, mm-hmm. um, 
And I, it would be fun for me to have someone I know also going through. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's probably Robin, there's, there's, there's Brandon Bouchard, there's a ton of great people out there. Mm-hmm. But I just think if you're, if you're building something and you think you've got a brand or a voice and you're trying to figure out how to, how to, you know, make, make the brand better, but also mm-hmm. how to amplify it, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any better than, than Marie. So, well, and the end of my little, commercial for Marie Forleo. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm sure uh, you're getting some uh, some uh, kickback from that. So, <laughs> Yes. Yeah, you know, I mean, some, you know, some people that have this success that do affiliate with her, and they, mm-hmm. you know, she does have those kinds of things in place. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, she doesn't know me from Adam. I think I commented once on one of her Instagram posts. Mm-hmm. She, I think she liked it or something. But, cool. um, so she's, you know, she's getting there all the time. Um, but I think her message is really... It's not just a message. It's like here's a how-to. Yeah. Here's 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 some resources. Here's some ways to do this. Here's oh, you can't think of the headline for your next email blog. Here's 20 resources to yeah. help you with your copyright mm-hmm. stuff like that. Really usable stuff. These are resources that are that I'm glad I stumbled upon and wish I'd stumbled upon them a little bit earlier. But so sorry, I've been so gabby. I, it's it's. <laughs> Don't I know, apologize. I'm, I'm telling you, uh, this a great is... interview or a bad interview, but someone won't shut up. Oh no, this this has been great. You know, I always have to go back through. I you know I have to clean up the audio, take out background noise, this, that, and the other, and uh, and then I go back and I I edit for content. This is going to be the easiest ones to edit for content. I think because <laughs> um, the first hour you know, we had the little phone glitch. That's going to have to be an edit. You know, what I'll have to do is we'll have to do an update interview. You know, once uh, all the stuff with Chop Saver gets out there and things develop with this new private label, uh, you know, maybe we'll do a follow-up. Yeah, that'd be great. Hey, uh, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I couldn't say that enough. Thank you, Larry. Enough. This is fun. All right. Have a great day. Thanks, Larry. Talk hey, to you, you soon. Too. Yep. See ya. All right. Bye. Take care. Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here, and please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcasts from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you, too, can be a supporter. Check out how at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl. And one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes, merchandise, and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back for more great interviews.